I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, and verse 31. Our text today is the remainder of Luke, chapter 4. We're going to look together at these verses on this theme. Jesus is the Holy One of God. In the last section of Luke, we learned about the time that Jesus went into the synagogue in Nazareth, which was there in his hometown. And he was anointed by the Holy Spirit with a divine commissioning on his ministry as the Messiah. He stood and read from Isaiah 61, Isaiah 61 being the Messianic passage. And then he declared that that passage had been fulfilled in his presence. Jesus had come to preach the good news to the poor and to set free people who are in spiritual captivity and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And when we're presented with this truth about Jesus, it brings us to a crisis of belief. There's no middle ground when it comes to Jesus. Either we believe and we follow him by faith as his disciples, or we reject and we continue to go on our own way. And this is the same decision that's in front of us all today. Either we believe and we follow Jesus, or we remain in our unbelief. I begin reading in Luke chapter 4 and verse 31. The Bible says, Then he, Jesus, went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and was teaching them on the Sabbath. They were astonished at his teaching because his message had authority. In the synagogue there was a man with an unclean demonic spirit who cried out with a loud voice, Leave us alone. What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him and said, Be silent and come out of him. And throwing him down before them, the demon came out of him without hurting him at all. Amazement came over them all, and they were saying to one another, What is this message? For he commands the unclean spirits with authority and power, and they come out. And news about him began to go out to every place in the vicinity. Now verse 38. After he left the synagogue, he entered Simon's house. Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked him about her. So he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. She got up immediately and began to serve them. When the sun was setting, all those who had anyone sick with various diseases brought them to him. As he laid his hands on each one of them, he healed them. Also, demons were coming out of many, shouting and saying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Christ. When it was day, he went out and made his way to a deserted place. But the crowds were searching for him. They came to him and tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said to them, It is necessary for me to proclaim the good news about the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. The events surround the Sabbath day. Jesus went down to Capernaum from Nazareth, Nazareth being up on a perch on the hill, and Capernaum being down below sea level. 
It was a prosperous fishing town with a more varied population than Nazareth because it was close to the Decapolis, an area made up of 10 cities. Capernaum became known as Jesus' own city. It was located on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. The city is almost completely gone today other than some ruins that we find there along with ruins of a synagogue. Jesus went there to the synagogue to teach the word of God. In that congregation would have been ordinary people. There would have been fishermen and merchants and craftsmen and workers. And it was there that he healed a demon-possessed man. The healing of this demon-possessed man uh, and the casting out of the demon from the man is representative of Jesus' first miracle in the Gospel of Luke. We come back again to this idea of the supernatural that's front and center, demons being the fallen angels who rebelled against God. In Revelation 12 and verse 9, it says the great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled down and his angels were with him. So when Satan fell from heaven and from that choice position that he had in the presence of God, fully one-third of the angels went with him. And many today are influential over the powers and the principalities over the darkness that Ephesians talks about, influencing the evil that takes place in this world. And yes, a demon can possess a human body, although a demon cannot possess the body of a believer because we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And he that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. Even so, we could be oppressed and they could cause us trouble in this spiritual battle that we have been engaging in as Christians. And Jesus encountered many demons in his earthly ministry. The demon referred to here in Luke chapter 4 wanted Jesus to leave them alone. So he declares in verse 34, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. You see, the demon was right about the identity of Jesus. He recognized who he was. And Jesus rebuked him in that moment and said, be quiet and come out of him. And in that moment, the man was thrown down and the demon came out and the man was unharmed. This title, the Holy One of God, identifies Jesus as absolutely holy and completely God. His character is holy. His mind is holy. His motives are holy. His words are holy. His actions, his ways, and his judgments are thoroughly holy. And he is God. Holiness has to do with otherness. It's separation from that which is sinful. Moses asked in Exodus chapter 15, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, and doing wonders. Holiness has to do with the sinless perfection of Jesus. He's blameless in all of his ways. Isaiah used the formal title for God, the Holy One of Israel, in Isaiah 41 and verse 14. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Right on the hills of this exorcism, when the demon is cast out and the man is healed, the story proceeds fairly quickly and tells us 
that Jesus went to Simon Peter's house for dinner. Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever. I love the detail that the physician Luke gives us. It's not just she's sick, but she's sick with a high fever. He's given us details about the particular circumstance. And Jesus assesses the situation and heals her. And immediately she gets up and she begins to serve them. Then after sundown, the word had spread and the whole town comes with the people that are sick. Many again of whom were possessed by evil spirits. And they come to Peter's door and they're wanting help. The word had spread about the ability of Jesus and the power of Jesus. And they want to get to where he was. And Jesus heals them in what amounts to a wholesale healing, not just individual people, but many people who came and lined up and wanted help from the Lord. Early the next morning, Jesus slips away, and Mark's gospel tells us specifically that he went away to pray. But again, the crowds found him there, and they were where he was, but yet he had more work that he needed to do, and he would continue on in his ministry. Now, what I want us to spend our time on for just a few minutes are some of the actions of Jesus as the Holy One of God in his ministry that give us insight, number one, into who Jesus is, and then two, who we are, And three, where our faith needs to be placed. We learn about the character and the identity and the ability and the power of Jesus and how important it is for us to know him and to be saved and to be disciples because he's the only one who is worthy of our following. And the first action that we find in this passage is that Jesus speaks with authority, revealing himself as the Holy One of God. Verse 32 says they were astonished at his teaching because his message had authority. Uh, Mark's gospel states he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Mark chapter 1 and verse 22. Now from the very beginning, Luke is concerned with presenting Jesus in his lordship. So he's wanting to present Jesus to us as who he really is, where he had come from, what he came to do, the power that authenticated what he was able to do. And remember, the miracles that Jesus performed were not for some type of sensationalism. They weren't for the thrill of the crowd to see the ability of Jesus. The miracles of Jesus authenticated who he was, and they authenticated and validated the truth of the gospel message that he had come to deliver. And I think this synagogue crowd was probably accustomed to these rabbis who were quite uncertain about what they believed and what they were teaching. They would perhaps be uncertain in the way that they presented it. They would be presenting different viewpoints, and they would be arguing their own viewpoint, and they weren't absolutely sure what they believed, but they knew that they wanted to present these things to the people. And here's Jesus. He's not like them. He is speaking with authority. He is speaking with confidence in the content of his message. Now, when we think about authority, authority is the legal or rightful power to command, to act. It's jurisdiction. So if you have authority in your life's responsibility, that means that you have the ability to act in what your sphere of influence is, and in your jurisdiction, you're the one who is in charge over that particular thing, however small or however great it might be. When we speak of Jesus having authority, 
We're thinking about the authority that came from heaven to earth to rule and to reign and to declare the word of God and to forgive sins and to save people and set them free who are lost. You think about if there was no authority in our world, it would be absolutely in a state of chaos and anarchy. If there was no authority, if there were no uh, guardrails in the world by which we go by, it, it would be pandemonium. And the authority of the world is representative ultimately in a good way of the authority of God. A theologian from the last century by the name of Norval Geldenheis said, all, all authority rest in God. As creator and sustainer of the universe, he has the absolute right over all created beings and an all-embracing authority in heaven as on earth. This final and supreme authority gives him the unlimited prerogative to command and to enforce obedience, to unconditionally possess and absolutely govern all things at all times in all places in the universe. When we look to the Bible, we find very quickly the authority of God in the Old Testament. And then when God entered into a covenant relationship with Israel and he uh, inscribed the law on the tablets of stone as described as the very finger of God that had written them, that was declaring the authority of God. And in the Old Testament, we find the phrase, thus saith the Lord, or something similar, 2,000 times, telling us that what we ought to be concerned about as the people of God is what God has said. Our authority should come from the word of God. Our authority should come from the truth that God has given us in his word. The New Testament claims the authority of God as well in that all scripture is given by inspiration of God, meaning that it has been God-breathed. And what is God-breathed is authoritative, and it gives us everything that we need pertaining to life and godliness. So we have decisions to make about the life of the church. We find out how to make those decisions from the Word of God. We have decisions to make about our own lives and how we're going to live as uh, people who know God. We find our direction in the Word. And ultimately, this is our source of authority. And the age that we're living in is trying to tell us that there is no objective source of authority. We are our own authority. And as I said earlier, that is a recipe for chaos. That's a recipe for spiritual anarchy. And that's exactly what we're seeing uh, take place all around us. Jesus spoke the truth as he taught with authority. I think he was addressing matters of life and death and eternity as he taught with authority. I think he was raising curiosity and interest. And as he talked to the people, he was connecting with them. After all, Jesus would use illustrations and analogies and comparisons. And he would talk about things that the people could identify with. And he wanted them to be able to take those truths to heart and understand who he was. To see communicated in him the very love of God as taught with authority. So that authority that comes from God was revealed in Jesus. There is an order of life and eternity, and obedience is subjecting ourselves to that order. Disobedience is doing as we please. Then there's a second action of Jesus in this passage. Jesus heals with power, revealing himself as the Holy One of God. Let's go back to this idea just for a moment in verse 40. 
Because it tells us that while the sun was setting, all those who had anyone sick with various diseases brought them to him. The word of the power of Jesus spread throughout Capernaum. Those who were suffering came to Peter's door. Every type of disease and every type of distress was represented. And at times, Jesus would heal an individual in certain circumstances in the Gospels. But in this particular circumstance, this is a wholesale healing. And I love the language of what's used here because it speaks of Jesus actually laying his hands on each one. And as he laid his hands on each one, he healed them. A couple of things about that. First of all, I think it tells us something about the compassion of Jesus, that he was concerned with their brokenness. He was concerned with the predicament that they found themselves in. I think it also tells us something about uh, the symbol of the divine outflow of power that was working through Jesus. Some of the illnesses were caused by evil spirits. Demons came out of the people and they were shouting truths again. You are the son of God. And Jesus rebuked them in that moment and told them not to speak. Now, this is an interesting point that we find in the gospels that's referred to as the messianic secret. Not meaning that the identity of Jesus as the Messiah was ultimately to be kept hidden where people couldn't see it but meaning that it was a progressive revelation of who Jesus was as he was working through his ministry on the earth leading up to the time that he would give his life on the cross. So when we find this in the scripture and there's kind of a hush-hush moment, it's Jesus essentially saying to them, it's not yet the time for that particular thing to be said in this particular circumstance. And even in that, Jesus is exercising his lordship. And Divine healing involves a supernatural act which solves a physical problem. Now, I find it interesting that approximately one-fifth of the gospel narrative is devoted to Jesus' healing ministry. Healing may come through medicine on this earth, practically speaking, which God gives the knowledge and the ability to perform. Or healing may come through direct intervention by God in response to prayer. Or if God wills, ultimate healing and wholeness may not come until we get to heaven. But what we know is that God is the great physician and all healing belongs to him. The obvious question that we ask though in these moments is, if something uh, terrifically bad happens to us or we are terribly sick and we pray for healing and we don't get it or if we're in some situation in life where we're greatly limited by our physical condition and we're not finding relief from it where is God and what is God doing I've shared with you before one of my uh, favorite uh, testimonies of the faith from Johnny Erickson Tata some of you have read her books and been encouraged by her faith the short version of her story is that she dove into shallow water as a young person and was severely injured causing her to become paralyzed so for the last 50 years she has lived in faith whether or not she's received miraculous physical healing she has been a strong testimony for God and here's what she wrote she said, God may remove your suffering, and that will be a great cause for praise. But if not, he will use it. He will use anything and everything that stands in the way of his fellowship with you. So let God mold you and make you and transform you from glory to glory. And she said, that is the deeper healing. There are several important 
subpoints I'd like to make here about being healed physically. There's a lot of misinformation and misunderstanding about the whole concept of healing, even in Christian circles. So let's think about this biblically just a little bit further. I'd say, first of all, that the power of God has not changed at all. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the God who healed then is the same God who can heal now. He has not lost any of his ability to heal, and his love and his compassion for people has not changed at all. Second, God has instructed us to pray for the sick. And when we pray for the sick, we are to pray in faith. We're to pray believing. Why else would we pray if we weren't praying believing and trusting in the sovereign will of God? Third, God can and does heal according to his sovereign will. Why, when, and how is often a mystery from the human standpoint. God obviously does not answer every prayer for healing. He is God, and he knows what is best. What we know is that when God heals, it is always for his glory, and the purpose of God healing is always to exalt and lift up the name of Jesus. Now, there's some of you in this very room who have experienced God's supernatural healing. We've been recipients of a supernatural healing in our own family. And I can give you testimony that God can work in ways that when we pray, we're not sure what he's going to do. But then when he does it, it's pretty amazing. And we can step back and give God the glory for what he's done. And there are other times where God answers those prayers differently. But here's the major idea I want you to walk away with on this particular point. Physical healing is symbolic of spiritual healing. Furthermore, physical healing at best is temporary in this life. Spiritual healing is eternal. Let me just state that again, just in case anybody missed it. Physical healing is symbolic of spiritual healing. Physical healing at best in this life is temporary. Spiritual healing is eternal. Isaiah 53 and verse 5 says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So what is this spiritual healing that we speak of? Spiritual healing is being forgiven of your sins and being saved. Now, the beauty of it is that we will also receive ultimate healing in heaven. Because the Bible tells us that heaven in the presence of God is the place where there's no more pain, no more sickness, no more disease, no more suffering, no more death, no more tears. It's going to be perfect and it's going to be permanent. So we look to Jesus, and we trust in him because he has revealed himself as the Son of God, the Holy One of God, through his healing. Then there's a third and final action in this passage I want to show you. Jesus proclaims the good news of the kingdom of God, revealing himself as the Holy One of God. Verse 43 He said, it's necessary for me to proclaim the good news about the kingdom of God to other towns also because I was sent for this purpose. It is very important from a New Testament standpoint that we understand and have a framework of what the kingdom of God 
or the kingdom of heaven is all about. The kingdom of God appears, first of all, here in the gospel of Luke, in Luke's writing. But it's a phrase that we will find 37 more times as we make our way through this gospel. Kingdom relates to the realm in which a sovereign king rules. And in the New Testament, the word kingdom refers to the rule of Christ in the hearts of the believers, first of all. Because in that sense, his kingdom is not of this world. It has not been fully consummated. And in a greater sense, the kingdom of God is his rule and reign over all that is subject to him. Now let's think about it this way. Jesus made many comparisons to the kingdom of God that give us further insight into what he's talking about. Uh, He said that the kingdom is like a banquet and a great wedding feast, and the door will be closed eventually, and some will not have accepted the invitation that they've been given. The kingdom is like a treasure that's been hidden in a field, and you would be wise to sell everything that you have in order to buy the field and get the treasure. The kingdom is like a net that is cast far and wide, and that net pulls in all sorts of fish, and when the fish get there, you've got to separate out the good from the bad. The kingdom is like a landowner who has hired workers to go in uh, to his fields and do the work. Some are hired early in the day, and some are hired late in the day, but it doesn't matter when you enter into the kingdom, the gift or, or the reward for what you receive will be the same in this sense. The greatest blessing is salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. And whether you come early or you come late, that's the gift that we get in him. The kingdom's like a mustard seed, Jesus said, and it grows from something very small to something that is very great. The kingdom is like yeast that permeates silently and pervasively. Jesus also dropped some ideas about the kingdom in that he said it's hard for the rich to enter into the kingdom because they got a lot of things that are obstacles to them. They're often dependent on themselves rather than being dependent on God. Jesus said that the kingdom has to be received as a child. We come with simple childlike faith and we enter into this kingdom. He said, not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom, but only those who do the will of his father in heaven. He said we're to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then everything that we need on this earth will be added to us. Before Jesus was crucified, he told his disciples that he would not eat and drink with them again until he does so in the kingdom. Jesus said that if your eye or your hand causes you to keep from entering into the kingdom, then you need to pluck it out or you need to cut it off. He said there's a great reversal coming in the future in the sense that tax collectors and sinners will enter into the kingdom before those who are religious and self-righteous enter into that kingdom. You see, this kingdom aspect has a past manifestation. The past manifestation of it is that God has always been sovereign. Is that not what Psalm 24 and verse 1 tells us? That the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all that dwells therein. So God has ruled throughout all of eternity And he has made his rule known through his creation on the earth. And then there is a present aspect of the kingdom that Christ manifested. Mark chapter 1 and verse 14 says, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. 
Jesus later on was asked to define the kingdom, and he explained in Luke chapter 17 when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he said the kingdom of God is not coming with something observable. No one will say, see here or there, for you see the kingdom of God is in your midst. So we think about the kingdom, there was a past aspect to it, there was a present realization of it because there the king was in their presence. The Messiah had come, and he'd come to rule in the hearts of people who come to him by faith. But there's a blessed hope coming in the future. And that the kingdom is future in the sense of the eternal reign of Christ. The kingdom will be ushered in suddenly and without warning. The kingdom will be consummated in that regard in the future age. Here's what Revelation 11 and verse 15 says. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. We will rule and reign with Christ. Was it not Jesus that instructed us in the Lord's Prayer? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That as citizens of the kingdom that we are to pray for the kingdom to come and God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. I love what Dr. Albert Moeller had to say about this. He said, what in the world would it mean to pray thy kingdom come? And here's his answer. Well, it is, first of all, an understanding that God has a promised kingdom, that he is himself a sovereign king, and that in his incarnation and in his saving work, his death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus has inaugurated a kingdom a kingdom that is not yet fully consummated. So we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's a prayer of loyalty. It's a prayer that comes from the subjects of the kingdom lifted up to the throne of the king. And here's a very important reminder for us. We are citizens ultimately of a different kingdom than what this world has to offer. We are citizens of a heavenly kingdom, and we're looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth. We're looking forward to the city whose builder and maker is God. And that reminds us that the ethic that we live by and the kingdom that we long for is not a temporary kingdom that is marked out by the things of this world. We are temporary residents on this earth, but we were made to reside in an eternal kingdom in Christ. So what that says to us is that it's important for us to understand our responsibility to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. That's what Jesus is talking about here. As they're gathering around him again there, as he's gone to the quiet place to pray, he says, well, I've got work to do. And that work is to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. And you see in that eternal kingdom, there'll be citizens from every people group, from every nation, from every tongue, all who have been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. And here's the vision that we get in Revelation 7 and verse 9. After these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne of God and before the Lamb clothed with white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying with a loud voice saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. I think this is a a particularly important reminder for us in the year 2020. 
Do not get pulled into the idea that this is all there is. Do not spend your time and waste your affections and yield your loyalty ultimately to a temporary kingdom, to a temporary structure, because we were made for an eternal one. And as citizens of the eternal kingdom, we live so that Christ can be made known. And I ask you this question in closing. Are you astonished by Jesus, the Holy One of God? It says it right here that the people were astonished. They were amazed. That that word uh, means to be struck with amazement. One preacher said they were thunderstruck in their souls when they heard the teaching of Jesus. Are you thunderstruck in your soul when you hear what Jesus has to say and what Jesus came to do? See, I think when we first come to faith, uh, most of us are. There's that excitement and there's that anticipation of how God's going to use us and it's all new and it's exciting and, and we're, we're on fire for the Lord. And then somewhere along the line, the things of God can become commonplace. They just kind of get ordinary to us. We've seen it all. We've done it all. We've heard it all. And, and if we're not careful, you know what can happen? We just start going through the motions just to get along, just to get by. As a follower of Christ today, I hope that you're not going through the motions. I hope that when you see believers' baptism, that your heart is stirred by the power of Christ to change lives. I hope when you take of the bread and the cup that you're in awe of Jesus and you're anticipating, longing for his return, that you're drawing close to him and worshiping him. I hope that as you leave here today and you go back into the community and you go about your routine this week, that the Lord Jesus Christ is not left here at the doors. But as you live for him this week, you see yourself as a representative of him and all that you do and that you want to invite other people to come and be a part of that family God has brought us into by grace through faith. That's what it ultimately means to be amazed, to be astonished by Jesus, who is the Holy One of God. Let's bow our heads together for a moment as we pray. Here in just a moment, I'm going to pray and we're going to sing a closing song. Maybe God stirred somehow in your heart today. And if you were honest, you'd have to say, I know I'm not a Christian. I know I'm not a follower of Jesus. But I sure want to be. I know I need to be. Do you know today... Right now, you can come to follow Christ. Today, your life could change. It could change forever in just an instant by the power of the Holy Spirit. God could change your life. Though our sins are many, His mercy is more. So I'm inviting you, if you don't know Christ today, to to take that step of faith and to trust in Him and to follow Him as your Savior and Lord. And then, Christian, how, how is the spiritual temperature in your life Is there astonishment when you sit down and read your Bible? When you see and hear the things we've talked about today, are you amazed? Are you thunderstruck in your soul? May God make it so and draw us closer to Him and closer to each other and encourage us in our faith.
God, thank you for this time that you've given us today. There's much to celebrate about it. We honor and lift up Jesus, the King of the kingdom. And we count it a privilege to be called your children. I pray now as we give this time of invitation and response over to you that if there are decisions that need to be made, that people would come. And Lord, that they would respond as you lead. And we thank you and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.